Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. We're going to look at the doctrines of God's transcendence and His eminence. We are in uh, the third or fourth week, third week, I believe, in the study of theology, in our doctrinal study of theology, into the doctrine of God. And so we're going to work on or look at a topic that is uh, quite significant as believers for us to recognize who God is and His greatness. I'm going to give you some scripture verses. We're going to read a few of those. uh, And we're going to talk about these two important doctrines. A.W. Tozer, the great Christian writer and preacher, put it this way. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. There's nothing about us that is more important than what we think about God. And if we're honest with ourselves, the amount of time and attention and devotion that we actually give to God is... Far less than it should be. But listening to an audiobook uh, by J.D. Greer entitled uh, Not God Enough. And he said for most of us, the problem is not that we reject God. It's that we reduce God from who he really is. I mean, you're here tonight uh, at, at a Bible study. A doctrinal study here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. You're here to learn. You're here to grow in your understanding of who God is. Your problem is not that you don't believe God. Or at least most of you. In fact, most of the people that we live with and around here in Wilkes County, they, they're not flaming atheists. There are a few, right? There are some that, that are agnostic. They don't really believe there's a God who rules and reigns. I've got a good friend of mine who is an agnostic. He doesn't really believe that God is and that he reigns and he rules and that Jesus came to die on the cross. And I pray for him on a pretty regular basis. When I pray for those that, that need to know Jesus, I pray for him. I don't often call his name out publicly because you would know him or some of you would know who he is. And I don't think I need to embarrass him in that category to pray for him. Uh, but most people in our community and county, they don't have a problem believing that there's a God. Their problem is that the God that they have, the God that's in their mind, is a much smaller version of the God who really is. Meaning that it's an inaccurate picture of who God is. And I'll be honest with you, I think many times in our own lives, my life and your life, that's exactly what we do. We reduce God down to someone that we're comfortable with rather than understand him for who he has revealed himself to be. And the doctrines of transcendence and eminence remind us that God is far greater than we could ever imagine. We'll look at that here in a moment. Let me give you some of the misconceptions that we have about God. Let's see if this is not true of someone you know or maybe has been true of you in your own life. Here's misconception number one. God is too small. God is too small. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, When someone says, the big guy upstairs. I can't stand that phrase. I remember, I think the first time I heard that phrase, I was watching wrestling, believe it or not. 
It was good old Hulk Hogan years and years ago, and he said something about the big guy upstairs. I'm like, is he talking about God? There's a teenager, you're like, man, maybe he knows God. And then the, uh, the longer you're around, you realize, man, that's, that, that is a really disparaging remark about God. It, but way too many people, their picture of God is just somebody who's way up there in the sky. And he's sort of like us, maybe a little different than us. Way too familiar. The Bible never talks about God in that language. Let me give you another misconception. God is too old. Now, if you look in Daniel chapter 7, there's the image of, of God who has flaming, flaming eyes and white hair. But that imagery is designed to depict God's holiness, not designed to depict God's age. God doesn't have age like we do. It, it, the, the picture here is a grandpa in heaven. Some of you, that may have been your, my, your conception of who God is. He's an, he's an old man in heaven sitting in a rocking chair, rocking little grandchildren on his knee. That's not, that's not the depiction of God in Scripture. That is a false notion of who God is. Let me give you another picture of God that is all too common in today's understanding of theology or today's argument with theology. God is too violent. He's too violent. They would take some of the specific passages of the Old Testament and say, hold on a second. God is, God is angry and he's wrathful. He's like Zeus. He's going to cast down lightning bolts from heaven. And I just want to say, as we continue in our study of God and his holiness, and as you read through scripture, God is wrathful. God is angry. But God is not angry in a vengeful sense, in the sense of he's going to get back at us because we broke his law today. The picture of too violent is that picture of the Greek god Zeus, who when someone did something out of kilter with the gods, would strike down someone with a lightning bolt. Our God is not that. God is not waiting to get you. I know some people, even some Christians, they wonder if, man, I haven't had a good week. Must be because last week I didn't pray enough. Or it must be because I haven't been to church enough. I know some people who are wondering if the reason their life isn't going as well as they expect it to is because they've really struggled with church consistency through COVID. There's some people who think that. That's not God. God is not a God waiting to get us. God is a God waiting to receive us. Now, waiting to receive us based on His... Um, invitation based on his pattern. We can't come to God on our own through our own means and righteousness, but he's not too violent. I'll give you another picture of God. And this is in contrast with the violent God of the Old Testament. God is nice now. And this is the, 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 those who would create some kind of difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Uh, I really like how J.D. Greer uh, kind of posed this, this uh, kind of tendency in the book I referenced, Not God Enough. He talked about the fact that some people want to say that the Old Testament God was the toddler God who pitched temper tantrums, while the New Testament God is Jesus who grew up and he, now he's nice to people. 
That, that's an, that, that is not the Bible. God is not nice now because he sent Jesus in human flesh. The same God who judged the people of Israel and the nations in the Old Testament is the same God that in the book of Revelation will judge the nations for rejecting him. Yet the same God who sent Jesus to be our Savior is the same God that provided a means for forgiveness in the Old Testament through the sacrificial system pointing to the forgiver and the redeemer on the cross in Jesus Christ. God is one and the same, Old Testament and New Testament. He has always been kind, but he has always been full of justice and judgment. Let me give you another misconception. This is, we could keep going. This will be the last one we do here. God is creation. This is pantheism. This is the idea that God is in all and, and through all. And, and just like, you know, God is in the trees like he's in us. Kind of the Star Wars mythology of the force. Those are misconceptions about God. Not all of them. There are plenty of other misconceptions, but those are several. What I want us to do is pull back from maybe the misconceptions we have or the misconceptions we've heard and pause for a second and think about what the Bible actually says about who God is. This is God's self-revelation. What does God say about himself? Who is God? Well, for starters, God is transcendent. The definition there, by the way, uh, in Millard Erickson's book, the chapter on transcendence and eminence, the reason he starts with transcendence and eminence in talking about the doctrine of God is precisely because we have a tendency to get our view of God wrong. And one of the best ways for us to get our view of God right is to make sure that it is biblical and the two categories biblically that describe God in his grandness and in his intimacy, in his otherness and in his relational capacity are his transcendence and eminence. The fact that he is greater than everything that could be imagined and yet he is also relational and personal. So that's why we're going to define both and work through both tonight. So God is transcendent. To define that, God is other Let me burst your bubble for a second. God is not like you. Okay? He's not like us. He is different than us in so many capacities. He's other. When the Bible says that God is holy, one of the primary uh, definitions of holiness... In the Old Testament, New Testament as well, Isaiah chapter 6, is the idea that God is other. He is sanctity in a way that no one else or nothing else is. He is different in a glorious way. He's other. Not only that he's other, but that he is infinite other. There's nothing, nothing that we know of that is infinite besides God. We're finite, meaning there's a beginning and an end to us. There's a beginning and end to Wilkesboro Baptist Church. There's a beginning and an end to nations and, and to laws and to things that go on in the world. That's one reason why we ought not get so called up and frustrated by the circumstances that happen around us. Everything is finite except God. God is infinite. And, and we'll come back to that in an application in a few minutes. He's infinite. He's omniscient. That means he knows everything. His knowledge is different than our knowledge. 
Our knowledge is based on what God has revealed to us or based on what we can study and learn. God's knowledge is perfect and he knows everything. There was never a time when God needed to learn. Okay? He knows everything. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. that, That lets us know that God is not like us. His knowledge is not like us. His power is not like us. His power is so far above us. It is omnipotent. It's glory. Uh, God is holy. Isaiah 6, holy. Holy, holy, holy. By the way, if you just want to do some meditation on that, the Bible never says God is love, love, love. Now, God is love. Absolutely. But the self-definition or the angelic worship that happened in Isaiah 6 is the thrice claim of God's holiness, which is... consistently saying this is who God is in terms of self-definition. He is holy. He's transcendent. Let me give you some verses that reflect on the transcendence of God. Some are in your handout in terms of the text. Uh, I'm not necessarily going to ask you to turn to all these because I'm going to read them. But I would encourage you, and get to this in an application, I would encourage you to take some of those verses and maybe in your reading tonight or tomorrow, read through these and just think through what God is claiming about himself in these passages of Scripture. How about Numbers twenty three nineteen? God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? The, the, the claim is God's not like us. He doesn't speak untruths or half-truths or, or, or shade things to make himself look better. God is absolutely truthful. How about Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9? By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap and puts the deep in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. God saying that he is the creator. He spoke, and everything is. We'll talk about how grand that statement is in just a few moments. How about Isaiah 55, 8 and 9? This is a good word for us. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. A lot of times we use that verse in reflection to, to thinking about uh, our circumstances and our suffering and our difficulty in life. And, and it's appropriate to do that, by the way, to remember that God's purposes are bigger and greater than ours. And, and he knows things that we don't know. And, but, but let me just pause and say, when we approach that verse through the lens of our own situations, that misunderstands the primary claim of that verse. The primary claim of that verse is... God doesn't think like we do. God's thoughts are so far above and beyond our thoughts that we need to adjust the way we think to the way that God says or what God says to the way that God thinks. I mean, he's just not like us. He wouldn't do things the way we do things. He doesn't do things the way we do things. So we ought to be thankful for that. Um, how uh, How about this one? Isaiah 40 verse 12. Who has measured... The waters in the hollow of his hand. Who has marked off the heavens with a span. Enclosed the dust of the earth 
in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Now, this is uh, language that's full of imagery, pictures, metaphors. He says, who has treasured the water, measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. I mean, think of how much water is on planet Earth. Now, we know that God is spirit, and so he doesn't have a body. Jesus came in human flesh. God is, is a spirit. So, this is imagery language. But just think about this. Who is, you know, how much water can you put in your hands? Not a lot, right? The Bible says that the waters on the earth can be measured in the hands of God. Now, that, that, that's, that's, those are big hands. Okay? Those hands are, are big enough to carry anything that you have going on in your life. Let me give you another imagery from the book of Isaiah. I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens. The claim here in Isaiah is self-claim by God. This is God speaking through the prophet where he says, I created the heavens. Now, we go to Genesis and we're going to talk. I don't remember if it's next week about the doctrine of creation. I I don't have my hand out in front of me for the schedule. We're going to talk about the doctrine of creation, God as creator. But God didn't just create the earth that we live in. God created all of the heavens that are seen or not seen, the ones that extend beyond that. And the text says that he did that by spreading out his hands. At least it's the picture that he's in control of that. I want you to think about how big that is for a moment. And, and I, I can't take credit for these thoughts. I, I read, uh, I, I've known this for a while. I've got a little book by Louis Giglio, which is, writ, which is uh, I am not, but I know I am. And there are other, other resources out there that talk about the vastness of the universe in thinking about the transcendence and the greatness of God. So I, I credit them for some of these thoughts. But I just want you to think for a second about the vastness of this space in which earth is found. Uh, Scholars, or not scholars, scientists suggest that the universe as we know it is at least 93 billion light years across. Okay, now let's get some perspective. The, The sun is 93 million miles from planet earth. If it were a little closer, we'd burn up. If it were a little further away, we'd freeze. Earth is placed in that perfect space where life can happen. Uh, Scientists call it the Goldilocks zone of planets. But we're in that perfect space. That means it takes eight minutes for the sunlight of the one star in the Milky Way galaxy that's close enough to Earth to give a seat. It takes eight minutes for sunlight to get from the sun to Earth. 93 million miles from Earth to the Sun. The universe is 93 billion light years across. A light year is how fast light travels in a year going more than 186,000 miles per second. 108, you got that math in your head? It's a little bit, it's a little bit. I'm not a math guy, okay? I can just read numbers. But I know these are big numbers. So a light year is how far light can travel in a year, moving at 186,000 miles per second. Light travels, get this, 5.88 trillion miles 
in one year. Okay? Tracking with me? Our galaxy is between 100,000 and 130,000 light years across. That means if you could get in a spaceship and travel the speed of light, Star Trek or Star Wars, you pick your sci-fi fantasy spaceship. But if there was a spaceship that let you travel the speed of light, okay, it would take you 100,000 years going light speed to cross the Milky Way galaxy. It's one galaxy among billions of galaxies across an ever-expanding space. Just for a little perspective, human history, human history on planet Earth, I'm talking about world civilization. I'm not getting into the debate of how old the universe is and millions of years or billions of years or hundreds of thousands of years. Simple human history, civilization history, 10 to 15,000 years old. Now, some would argue that there are civilizations that go back further than that. But when you're talking about the, the, the history of civilization in the ancient world, Egypt and, and Sumer and all of that, you're really talking 10 to 15,000 years of civilized history. Okay? That's all we're talking about. I mean, you and I are going to live... I'm 41 years old. I might have another 30 or 40 years in me. There's no way any of us could ever travel across... Even the Milky Way galaxy, much less even consider traveling the 93 billion light years across our galaxy. And scholars and scientists are pretty certain that the universe is continuing to expand at ever-increasing rates. Now, we're going to get into the doctrine of creation another week. But an expanding universe assumes something. It assumes a beginning point which is a fascinatingly accurate argument for the fact that someone or something began the universe as it is expanding. Uh, Some scientists would say the universe may be an infinite, but that's ridiculous. If you've got something expanding, it can't be infinite because it had a starting place. It just doesn't fit philosophically in terms of an answer. But here's what that means for us in terms of transcendent. I hope you realize that on planet Earth, this tiny little planet... In this backside of nowhere, Milky Way galaxy, in this massive space in which we live, that the Bible says God spread out the host of heaven. When it talks about hosts, he's talking about stars. He's talking about galaxies. He's talking about planets and solar systems. That's what he's talking about when he spread out the host. We're one person, or you're one person, I'm one person, on a planet of 7 billion people in this tiny little planet, in this tiny little backside of nowhere galaxy, in a, in a universe that is massive. And the Bible says God just spoke it into existence and spread it out by his hands. The doctrine of transcendence is designed to remind us how small we are In light of us acknowledging that God is far, 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 far bigger than we could ever imagine. There's not a person in this room that is guilty of thinking too much of God. Can't do it. It's impossible. But all of us in this room are guilty of thinking too little of God. What we need to do is realize that God is not impressed with us. Okay? 
So we shouldn't be impressed with ourselves. God is great. When we sing God is great, when we sing about God being majestic, we don't even come close to explaining who he really, really is. He is far more glorious than we can imagine. And the glory of that is that he is all of this, more than we could imagine, and yet he planned to interact in this world. That's where we get into the doctrine of eminence. Transcendence is God is other, he is above, he is beyond, he is more glorious than we can imagine. Think the biggest thoughts you can think about God and multiply them times infinity and you might get close. But yet God is imminent. What is eminence? Eminence is, it means that God is present in, present in and connected to his creation. It means that he is near us and that he relates to us. This should blow our minds. Okay, how many planets does God have to manage? Depending on how you want to define manage in terms of God's providence and his control and, and all of those things... How many planets? I mean, it's millions. How many galaxies? How many stars? How many, how many things going on in the world is God in control of? And yet, he intervenes in this world. He steps down into creation to accomplish things according to his purpose. Now, a couple things about that. As Christians, none of God's interventions in the world should ever bother us or should ever shake our faith. If, if God can speak all this into existence, having Jonah be swallowed by a fish, or parting the Red Sea, or sending flies and frogs on Egypt ought not bother our faith at all. Okay, I may not be able to explain how all of that happened, but okay, hold on a second. If God can speak it all into existence, and he's in control of this ever-expanding universe, the, the smallness of God deciding he's going to send an extra, you know, few billion flies to Egypt shouldn't bother me one bit. You say, but I can't explain that. I, I can't make sense of that. I can't describe how that could be. Folks, I, this is not new to me. I don't remember who the first person was who said this, but if God were small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. We're not going to be able to wrap our finite minds around all of the activities of God in our world. We're just not going to be able to do it. I'm not saying stop trying to understand God. I'm just saying realize that you're, you're not going to be able to understand all there is to know about God. And that should be okay. Because God is far greater than that. And yet, God steps down into creation, intervenes in creation... And wants to know his creation in that he wants to know us. Now, this is not pantheism. Pantheism is Eastern mythology. Pantheism is the idea that God is creation. Like the Star Wars myth, the force that permeates all things. That's not biblical theology. That is, that is bunk. God is not present in the, this room, in the physical presence of this room, in the sense that he indwells the seats and he's in the wood. That's not the way God intervenes in the world. He's not in creation. He's not creation in the sense that creation is God. He's separate from creation, but he steps down into creation. Let me show you some verses that speak of this. Genesis 3. What it means is God comes down into he can step into creation. It's a beautiful picture. Genesis 3, 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They heard the Lord walking in the garden. God 
came down from where he is, heaven, to walk with Adam and Eve. How about Genesis 11, 5? And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. That's the Tower of Babel. Here's a good study for you. Uh, a good friend of mine, a uh, Fruitland professor, Ben Tackett, preached a sermon a number of years ago at Fruitland Baptist Bible College where I teach as a professor. And he preached just the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, all the phrases that said, and the Lord came down. That's really a good study for you to read through Genesis and just see how many times the Lord stepped from where he was to where we are. He came down to see. He came down to walk. He came down to know. He came down to intervene. He came down to relate. He came down to walk with Abraham. It's just a picture of God stepping into his creation for a specific reason or purpose. How about this? 2 Corinthians 6 in the New Testament. The Lord says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. God steps down into his creation to make a people his people. He did that in the Old Testament with the people of Israel. And guess what? Today, we are God's people. Not in the same definition way that God called out the people of Israel. But we, the church, are God's people. He's grafted us into his family. We are his chosen race, 1 Peter says. We are a royal priesthood. He stepped down to make us his. How did God do that? His eminence. He stepped into creation. He stepped into, and ultimately he did that through the person of Jesus Christ. Which we'll get to the doctrine of Jesus in, uh, in several months. Acts chapter 17. Paul preaching a sermon, or not, yes, Paul preaching a sermon to the uh, uh, Greek philosophers, the Areopagus in Athens. He put it this way. And he made, from one, uh, for he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, being that God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver, or stone, or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. At times of ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and that is Jesus Christ. The picture is God's not far from each one of us. The beauty is that while God is so far above us, he gives us the privilege to know him through Jesus whom he sent that God might show himself to us. God is transcendent and God is imminent. I've given you a quote on your handout from Robert Latham in his book on systematic theology. And, and I want you, if you're taking notes, or if you've got a pen in front of your hand, there are, some, there are some places I want you to underline in this quote that I'm going to read in front of you. Because this is a fascinating kind of tie-in to God's transcendence and His eminence. The central purpose of revelation, that is God speaking His word to us, is gracious, that is to bring us salvation. Unfolding progressively over wide epochs, it is rooted in human history and historical events. Now that goes back to the doctrine of revelation that we're talking about, that we talked about several weeks ago. But it's just a reminder that when God spoke, He spoke in history. He spoke in historical events. We can go back and see whether Him speaking actually had uh, a sense of reality in the events that took place. And it does and it did. But here's what I want you to get at, get, get, get to. 
Above all, Revelation centers in Jesus Christ, the eternal Son. He is apprehensible, underline that word, apprehensible, which means known truly, but incomprehensible, if you'll underline that word, not known exhaustively nor enclosed by our thought. For God has accommodated himself to our capacity coming and living among us as a man. I want you to get this. Apprehensible, that carries with it the idea of eminence. God can be known through Jesus Christ. Incomprehensible, that carries with it the idea of transcendence. He'll never be known exhaustively. You and I are never going to find out all there is to know about God because we're finite. He is infinite. Notice how um, Latham continues. The incomprehensibility of God, this is a sentence you all ought to underline. The incomprehensibility of God is crucial for the whole of theology. It, assert, it alerts us to our limitations, our finitude, while simultaneously asserting the reality of God's revelation as a faithful testimony to who he is and all that he has done. The staggering point is that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of the Father, one with him from eternity, is also man. This is the supreme and overwhelming pledge that we can and do know God, for Christ, the eternal Son, has taken humanity in a perfect union. Catch that central statement. The incomprehensibility of God is crucial for the whole of theology. Here's what that means. We can spend all the time we want studying the doctrine of God. And we're not going to exhaust it. You can come to church every Sunday for the rest of your life. You can read the Bible through and through every single day of your life. And you are not going to exhaust who God is. God is bigger than you can imagine, grander than you can think. And if that's not the starting point for how we begin to think about God, then we've started at a place that's inaccurate about who God is. Let me make that really practical for just a second. Some of you and some of our church folks have felt guilty for not coming to church during COVID. I can't believe, I, you know, I hadn't been able to come. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm not, I don't, I mean, I, I don't, I've been afraid. Let me, just, let me just pause and take something off your plate a second. You do not need to come to church to make God happy or come to church because God some got, got some kind of heavenly ledger tracking the number of Sundays you came or the number of Sundays that you missed. God doesn't operate like that. Do you know why we need to be here worshiping God at church? You know why? It's not because there's some kind of heavenly track record for your soul. It's because God deserves the entirety of our attention. And when we gather, whether it's a Bible study like this on a Wednesday night or whether it's a Sunday morning with the gathered uh, congregation of people, when we gather, here's what we do. We pause and say, God, you are far more than I could ever imagine. And this hour is devoted to focusing on you. I'm not going to focus on anything. I'm going to focus on you. The reason worship is important, the reason attendance is important, the reason celebrating God is important has nothing. Oh, I mean, really, it has nothing to do primarily with you. It just doesn't. It's not about us. It's about him. It's us reminding ourselves that we're not who this world is about. 
it's us reminding ourselves that it's about him. It always will be about him. It always has been about him. It ever will be about him. And when we gather and sing that, even as, as short as that falls of who God really is, when we sing majesty or how great is our God, we didn't come close. But we at least told ourselves, sang to ourselves and sang to God who he is, sang truth, even if it's not exhaustive truth, it's true because it's repeating what God has said about himself. It's true. And we need that. We need that reminder because folks, there are things going to happen in your life and there are things that do happen in our lives that that shake us to the core. How, How do we figure this out? You know what? If it were all about us, that would really be a problem for the world. If it were all about inflation and finances and presidents and politics, then man, our world is in a lot of trouble. But it's not. I mean, all that stuff, does it affect us? Yeah, but it's not. Our world's not about that. God spoke our world into existence and he came down in our world to get to know him. So there's nothing more important than you and I could do. Nothing than know the God that has revealed himself to us in scripture. Let me give you some takeaways and some practical applications. Takeaway number one, God's transcendence and eminence should humble us and lead us to regular worship. Listen, we're just not that important. And that's why I need to be at church. To be reminded that I'm just not that important. That God is more important than me. More important than all of us. I should be humble. I shouldn't come in here thinking, you know, it's got to be about me. I should come here thinking it's about God. It's only ever been about God. And that should lead us to praise God accurately for who he is. And when we miss that, and we do, we, we're so, all of us are guilty of that. When we miss that, here's what we miss. We miss understanding God rightly. We miss it. And when we miss that, here's what we miss. We miss what God ex- invites us to do, which is be in right relationship with himself. That's where, that's where it has an effect on us. He transcends us. Theology that gives us an accurate picture of God and ourselves rightly humbles us. It kind of puts us on the, on the place that we should be. Isaiah 66.2. The one to whom God looks is the one who fears him. The one who trembles at his word. The one who is humble. The one who recognizes that he is not. That's the kind of people that we ought to be. Let me give you a practical application. At some point today or tomorrow, pause for a moment at least, maybe for longer, should be for longer, but pause and just ponder how great God really is. Take a moment or take several moments or take minutes or if you can, if you can pull it off, take a day away from work. Take a period of time. Some of you that God has blessed to be entering into this stage of retirement where you don't have the regular requirements of answering to a boss or a time clock, God has given you a space and a time in your life where you know what you can do? You can spend more than a moment and just ponder the greatness of God. And let me just tell you, there's not a thing you can do that is more glorious and wonderful nor more practical for your Christian faith than pausing and pondering the glory and the greatness of God. So take a moment or several or days and just pause and ponder God. Here's 
takeaway number two. God's transcendence and eminence mean that he is both infinite and personal. Listen, he is above us, beyond us, more than us. He is other. He is not like us. He is infinite. He is far greater than we can ever imagine. We're not. Yet God is personal. He sent Jesus in human flesh that we might interact with, relate to God. It should astound us that the God who created everything even knows us, much less invites us to know him. Some of you have met famous people. Uh, there, there are no famous people when compared to God, but nevertheless, some of you have met famous people over the years, and some famous people are really down to earth. And some famous people are jerks. They're kind of impressed with themselves, right? The only person who should ever be impressed with himself is God. And God invites nobody's like you and me to know him. And it, that, should just, that should just strike us with its privilege and with its glory. It just should. He is both infinite and personal. So here's the practical application. You've, you've heard me say this over and over again. I won't stop saying it. As long as I'm your pastor, I'm going to say this over and over and over again. Here's the practical application. Read the Bible to know God truly. If you are not reading God's Word every single day of your life, then uh, I could say shame on you. I could try to guilt you into it. But, but really, shame and guilt don't work. I'm just telling you, the only way you're going to know God truly is to know what God has said about Himself to us. And you know what? As exhaustive, as, as impossible as it is for us to exhaust the knowledge of God, we can still know God truly. And he's told us how we can know God truly. By reading his book. Now here's a wild thing. Here's the second practical application under this takeaway. Pray to God to talk to him personally. When we pray God hears... I don't know how. I don't. But God, in his glory and his greatness, gives attention to your prayers and my prayers and invites us to be in a personal conversation with him through our prayer life. I, I, I think some of us are going to be embarrassed one day when we meet God in heaven in that in that face-to-face moment. And we think back at how many opportunities we didn't take to consider Him, and yet we considered all this other stuff that doesn't matter. He is infinite and personal. Here's the last takeaway for tonight. The biblical affirmation of God's transcendence and eminence make Christianity unique. I should have put in the uh, adverb gloriously unique, amazingly unique. Christianity is like no other religious system on the face of planet earth. Uh, There is no personality in the God who indwells everything in pantheism. And the gods of the Greek worldview, Zeus and those others are personal, but man, you don't want to know them. They're, they're, just, they're just like bigoted other people. I mean, they're, they're, they're versions of ourselves. I don't, 
I mean, I don't want to follow somebody like me, nor do you really want to follow somebody like you. We want someone bigger than that, grander than that, greater than that. The Bible gives us God who transcends everything yet wants to know us and is imminent within his creation in the person of Jesus Christ. No other, study him. Go get a world religions textbook. Listen to some world religions podcasts. You will not find another religious system that offers you a deity or the deity who is transcendent and personal at the same time. They're non-existent. Christianity is gloriously unique. So here's the practical application. Will you tell somebody about the fact that Christianity is gloriously unique? If A.W. Tozer is right, and I believe he is, when he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. There are so many people around us, in our families, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our relational circles, that if we asked them to give us a statement about who God is, that statement about who God is would not only fall staggeringly short of reality, who God really is, but it would fall staggeringly short of salvation and eternal life. Folks, the only thing that will ever matter, the only thing that will ever matter, let me say it again, the only thing that will ever matter with our friends and our neighbors and our family members and our co-workers is not who they voted for in the primary election yesterday. It's not who they're going to vote for in the elections in November. It's not who they're going to vote for in the next presidential election. It's not where they drew a paycheck from. It's not how much money they had. It's not what their bank account looked like. It's not how much your 401k looks like. God bless our 401ks with inflation. I mean, you know, it, 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 but ultimately, none of that will matter a hill of beans in eternity. You know, the only thing that will matter for any person on planet Earth, ultimately, is did they know who God really is? Here's the catch for us as followers of Jesus. We have the privilege to be here at a church where we open up God's word. And our church is not unique because of who's on staff or unique because who's leading worship. What makes our church special is because this book is what governs what we say and what we do. It does. It wouldn't matter if there was somebody different in the pulpit saying that as long as the person different in the pulpit said this is what's important. If this is what's important, this is what changes lives. So folks, because of that... We have a wonderful privilege, but a glorious responsibility too. If we know God rightly, and we're enamored with Him truly, then we have a responsibility to take that worship that's very real in our hearts and lives, was real tonight. I could see it on your faces. I, I, could, see, I could see the joy of realizing that God is far more than we could dream or imagine. We have a responsibility to take that to somebody else. And tell somebody else about that God. And maybe they don't want to hear. Maybe they want to see. Invite them. You know what the coolest thing was about tonight's worship and Sunday's worship and the worship the previous week? It isn't about the person leading us in worship. And I thank God for Dustin and for Mike and for Retta and for all our praise team. You know what the coolest thing is? When we hear y'all singing. You know why? Because it means we as a congregation are testifying that this God is real. 
You realize not a person walks into a church, not a person walks into a church and thinks, man, I'm going to judge this church based on the quality or the style of the worship that is there. They don't. They don't. Most, pe- most lost people don't give a flip what kind of style it is. You know what they care about? You know what they care about? They care about whether or not the people in the, in, in the church believe that what they're singing is true. And when you all sing, you know what it says to everybody? It says, these folks actually buy into what they're singing. You know what? God is worthy of us buying into far more than we sing. Far more than we praise. You know why I love? Man, I, man co- I'm just confessing here. Okay, I'm on a roll. We're late, but I'm on a roll. You know why COVID was so hard for me and for us as a staff? Because I looked out and I didn't see anybody here. And I knew you were watching at home. I, I, and I heard about it. And, and we could... But I didn't see it. I didn't see your faces. I didn't see what God was doing. You know why I love people being here in our worship service? It isn't because ultimately I care that we had this many more people attending than then. I mean, that, that matters to all of us, right? Because attendance reflects persons and persons reflect people who are following Jesus or we hope are following Jesus. But really what it says is that there's something happening that reflects that there is someone who is real. That's why it matters, folks. Because people desperately need a relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and they may not hear us when we witness to them. I hope they do. But man, if, if they hear you singing and it, and it comes across like you believe it, man, it's a message. If, if they, they sit in here in a worship service... And, they, and they, they hear us preaching it and see God at work in people's hearts and lives through responses. Why does that matter? It matters because it, oh man, there's something going on there. Something going on there. And for those of you that are wondering, when is God going to do that with my kid? When is God going to do that with my grandchild? When is God going to do that with my family member? I just want to remind you, he has been doing that ever since he spoke the world into existence. Don't stop asking him. Because he cares more than anything else, more than anyone else that people know him. Because knowing him means forgiveness and eternal life. And it means real humanity and relationship with God. God cares. Don't stop praying. Don't stop asking. Don't stop begging God to be involved. I've got to stop. Because I'm going to get fussed at by the leaders who are, who are having kids way longer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being more than we can imagine. Um, I, I have no idea whether I've... Well, I, I know in tonight's lecture, I've not done justice to your grandness. I know that. There's no way I could. But I pray, Heavenly Father, that because of... Because what we've talked about is based on the truth of Scripture. I pray that even if we haven't been able to wrap our minds around you exhaustively, I pray that we have been able to understand at least what your scripture says to us truly. I pray more than anything that what it does is it drives us to our knees in humility. It drives us to our Bibles to read about you. It drives us to pray to you and talk with you. It drives us to invite others to meet the God 
who's redeemed us and forgiven us. Lord, for those of us that are here tonight, let us never lose sight of the fact that you are different. You are other. You are more than we can imagine. And yet you stepped into our world in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, to give us the privilege to know you. Thank you for that. We praise you for that. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you let what we've learned today shape our belief about you and shape our behavior as we leave tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.